morning. Good to see all of you this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter, we're going to start in chapter 23 today. Genesis chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you'd like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are provided for you there in the chair racks in front of you. And if you don't know where to find things in the Bible, that's okay. We have people with us each week who don't know where to find things in the Bible. Uh, But Genesis is the very first book in the Bible, and so if you start at the beginning and work your way forward, you'll find Genesis chapter 23 pretty quickly. I want to just give you a heads up about something that we're going to be doing at the end of the service. At the end of a service today, we have the uh, bittersweet privilege of uh, sending Jasmine, one of our longtime members, off to Germany. Um, She is going to be serving as a missionary there in Germany, and she's going to be leaving on Tuesday, I believe, of this week. And so we're going to have a few people come up, and we're going to pray for her and send her off at the end of the service today. Before we get there, we're going to spend some time uh, in taking really a a pretty large chunk of Scripture together, uh, both this week... And then next week is Easter, so the following week. So we're going to split this large chunk of Scripture. It's actually not correct in your bulletin. It's actually uh, chapters 23 to 27. And we're going to cover all of those chapters in two weeks, but it's going to be split up by Easter weekend next week. I want to ask a question this morning. What What do you think we mean when we talk about the sovereignty of God? That's a phrase that you may have heard before. We, we talk about the sovereignty of God from time to time. But what, what is sovereignty? What does that mean? Well, sovereignty speaks of God's lordship over His creation. And there are many components to that lordship that He exercises over His creation, but What I want to do is just highlight this morning for you two components of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is a a statement both about His authority and His ability. So let me explain what I mean by that. Authority speaks of God's right. He He has the rights to operate the universe according to his choosing. That's what we mean when we talk about his authority. But I've also brought in the idea of his ability, and his ability speaks of his power to dispense the universe according to his own free choosing. So when we speak about God's sovereignty, we're speaking about both his his authority, his right to do so, and his ability his power to do so. And I believe the Bible presents a picture of a God who is absolutely sovereign. There is no limiting aspect to His nature or His creation that prevents Him from doing anything which He chooses to do. He has absolute authority. And that absolute authority is is paired with an absolute power. He is omnipotent. There is nothing that he desires to do that he is not able to do. 
And as I said, I think the overall witness of the Scriptures is that God is sovereign in directing the affairs of His creation. Yet, we have people like me and people like you living within that creation, making choices every day, don't we? You made a choice to be here this morning. And as we read through the witness of Scripture, we see God promising blessings if certain things happen, and God promising consequences if other things happen. We have Joshua standing for the people and saying, uh, saying uh, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, reflecting his choice of his family, encouraging the people of Israel to, to choose likewise. And this highlights the tension then that we live in as, as finite, that word means limited, finite human beings. Because we have to affirm two things that we can't reconcile. That God is absolutely sovereign, and yet we live in a world in which we make real choices. This is the tension between God's sovereignty and what we could call human responsibility or freedom. Well, this morning, I'm going to solve that for you. I didn't think you would laugh so quickly. I thought maybe someone here would think, oh, he's found it. (laughs) Okay, I'm not going to solve that for you this morning. (laughs) In fact, D.A. Carson, who has written a book called God's Sovereignty and Human Responsibility, which is a small little book that's very helpful if you've ever wanted to explore this a little bit more. But he says this in the introduction about this. He says, the sovereignty-responsibility tension is not a problem to be solved. Rather, it is a framework to be explored. Meaning we've got to read the Bible And we've got to let the Bible say all the diverse things that the Bible says, recognizing that some of these things that we we just simply have to hold in tension and we have to explore, as Carson puts it, this framework. Well, the next two weeks, and of course we've got Easter in the middle, so I'm going to talk two weeks and you can just translate in your mind this week and then in two weeks. But the next two weeks, the story that we're going to be looking at is going to give us an opportunity to explore this tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility or freedom. We're going to look at the relationship between two brothers named Jacob and Esau. And as we examine their relationship and what God is doing behind the scenes of their relationship, we're going to it's going to give us an opportunity to explore some of this tension between God's sovereignty and human freedom. All right, so that's kind of setting the table for you. All right, so imagine we're in a bus and we've got to get to chapter 25, which, was, which starts talking about Jacob and Esau. And as we're on our, way to, on our way to chapter 25, I just want you to look out the window along the way and I'm going to point out a few pieces of key scenery. Genesis chapter 23 records the death of Sarah. Sarah lives to be 127 years old. She had a baby, remember, at the age of 90, so she gets to see Isaac live to the age of 37. 
and she finally passes away. And all of chapter 23 basically records her husband, Abraham, buying a field from a Hittite in Canaan that has a cave in it where he is going to bury his wife. And there's a lot of detail in that chapter, but let me just give you the significance of it. In, in, in the culture of the time, people who would have been far away from their homeland and their family clan would have been taken back to it to be buried there. And so this is significant. Sarah's body is not taken home because Sarah is home. Burying her is a statement about their belief in God's promises to them that this is their homeland and that everything that they can see as they look north and south and east and west is one day going to belong to their descendants. That's the significance of burying Sarah there. Okay, look out the other window as we drive by chapter 24. Isaiah chapter 24 gives us the uh, story of how uh, their son, Isaac, meets his wife, Rebecca. Abraham is, is starting to get old, and he's realizing that, that Isaac is not married. And so in the custom of the times, he says, it's time for me to get a wife for you. And so he sends his most trusted servant back to their homeland to, to find a wife for Isaac. And so the servant travels back there, and he doesn't know exactly what to do or how he's going to find this woman. And so he prays this prayer on the way back and just tells the Lord, I'm going to stop at a well and I'm going to ask one of the ladies there for a drink. And if the lady says, yes, and I'll water all of your camels too, which let me just uh, tell you is a huge job. Uh, it's, it's, it's maybe a couple hours of work. It's not just uh, let me turn this thing on so that your camels can drink. Uh, it's labor intensive. And he asks that whoever offers to do that uh, would be the one. Okay, so this is a good time for me to remind you that there's a difference between what is prescriptive in the Bible and what is descriptive in the Bible. And sometimes we miss those two things and we think that the everything that the Bible describes, it says, and thus you do it that way. So in no way is the Bible telling us, you're looking for a wife, set up some elaborate thing somewhere where the first person that walks up to you, she's the one. That's not necessarily what the Bible is teaching us in this passage but God graciously answers this servant's request through this sign, and he meets Rebecca. And so he goes back to Rebecca's family, and uh, he's very wealthy. He's brought lots of camels. He's brought lots of money to show, got a big dowry here. You're going to be set up pretty good, even though I can't even show you a picture of this guy because pictures don't exist yet, and he wasn't good at drawing. So this is a, a sight unseen sort of thing. And it just happens that this is part of their family clan, which is a little bit weird to us, but the thing we need to remember is it was, not, it was not odd at the time to marry within your extended family. That was, that was a normal practice during those times. And so he kind of makes his case to, to bring Rebecca back, and uh, they, he asks if she'll go, go back with him, sight unseen, and the family kind of tosses the, the decision to Rebecca and says, well, do you want to go back with them? And to put it in today's vernacular, she swipes right. She says, some of you got that. She says, yes, uh, I will do that. I will, I will go back with you and see this guy 
that I have never met before and live there with people that I've never met before in a place that I have never seen. And that's exactly what she does, and that is the beautiful love story of how Isaac and Rebecca get married. That's chapter 24. All right, got one more, one more thing to point out, the bus window. Chapter 25. Chapter 25 ties up the story of Abraham. We've been with Abraham on this journey for a long time. We've been through all kinds of ups and downs with Abraham. And uh, I don't know if maybe you're like me, but you get attached to people when you're reading a book. Uh, you, get, you get emotionally invested in that person, and when it's, when it's time to let go of that person, when that book finishes, it's hard to let go. Uh, but that's where we're at right now with, with Abraham. It's tying up his story. Uh, believe it or not, when, when Sarah dies at 127, and he's 10 years older than her, so he's 137, Abraham says, why not have another go at marriage? And so he gets married again, and he actually has several more children. And uh, he lives to the age of 175, and then he passes away. And there's this neat thing that, that I had never noticed before in the text, that it's, it's fairly small, but the Bible tells us, one, that, that Abraham is buried with his wife in this cave that he has purchased for them. So, so they're literally planting themselves in the land of promise. They're literally planting themselves there. But the other thing that I noticed is that, that both Isaac and Ishmael bury him. Remember, Ishmael, had, Ishmael and Isaac, they'd gone their separate ways. And you know how we have funerals uh, today that sometimes bring diverse, divergent, sometimes unhappy with each other family members back to the same place. Well, that's what, that happened then too. And Ishmael comes back with Isaac uh, and they bury their father next to their mother. And we see in verse 12 of chapter 25, we have the seventh instance of that, these are the generations phrase. Uh, we started talking about this last year when we began in Genesis, but Genesis has these markers, 10 of these markers in it that say these are the generations. And it either gives us a genealogy or it gives us a story about the people that are, that are introduced in that. So that gives us our seventh phrase. Okay. That was our road trip. I brought us all the way up to chapter 25. And the eighth occurrence of these are the generations. And that introduces us to Isaac's family. If you're there in Genesis, look at chapter 25 and verse 19. The Bible says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, this is one of several parallels we're going to see along the way, parallels between the life of Isaac and Rebekah and the life of, of his parents, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah struggle with fertility issues, and we see here that Isaac and Rebekah are struggling with fertility issues. And as I said last time, there are no fertility clinics to be visited. There are no doctors to try to figure out if there's anything that can be done 
the only option that's open to them is prayer. And so they pray to the Lord that uh, Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife and she is able to get pregnant. Now, she gets pregnant, but something, she feels something strange happening inside of her. And we can see this in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 25. It says, the children struggled together within her. And she says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, we forget what it was like to live back in this time period. She's feeling some sort of struggle within her and wondering what is going on. Now, now we're going to just pop over to the doctor's office and we have any number of ways of, of peering, peering inside the womb to, to see what's going on. We, can, we have perfect 3D rendered images of the child within the womb. So it's, it's, not like, it's not like when I was first looking at those pictures and the doctor was pointing out various things and I was nodding and seeing nothing of it. Okay, you can see a, a 3D rendering of your baby growing. We can do genetic testing. We can, there are all sorts of things that we can do to screen and know and figure out problems, but they have none of that available to them. So she inquires of the Lord why it feels like there is a war going on inside of her. And the Lord tells her that this is, this is simply a foretaste of things that are going to come, and God reveals to her three unexpected, surprising pieces of information. The first surprising piece of information that the Lord gives her is, surprise, it's twins. Second piece of information that is disclosed to her is that these, are, these twins represent two peoples. They represent two nations that are going to that are going to develop from these twins within her. The third surprising piece of information that she gives them is that there is going to be an unexpected reversal. The younger is going to be over the older. The older one is going to serve the younger. There is going to be a subversion of birth order, which of course was very important at the time. Okay, fast forward now, Bible fast forwards to the time when she's ready to deliver. Look with me at verse 24. It says, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. Okay, just like God said. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Okay, so the sibling rivalry that she can feel within her extends even to the moment they are being born. The oldest one is named Esau, and the younger one, the Bible says, is named Jacob, and that 
that, that Hebrew name Jacob is a play on the Hebrew word for heel. So he comes out grabbing, as it were, his brother's heel, and it's very probable that this was such a unique thing, such a remarkable thing, that they, they chose to name him Jacob because of this interesting thing that's happened at their birth. Now we know, and we'll see later, that it begins to carry the connotation of someone who grasps at someone's heel in a way to trip them up. And so this be- actually, the connotation of his name becomes someone who deceives. But it's doubtful that he was born in the moment they looked at him, they said, Deceiver, that's a great name for him. Okay, so that probably developed over time. Now, I will just say this as a brief aside. Can't help but wonder here if there is some kind of connection between this and, and Genesis 3. Remember, uh, in Genesis 3, there's this promise that there's a descendant coming. And what's the descendant going to do? What's this descendant of promises going to do? Going to put, I see some of you mouthing it. He's going to put his, his foot, his heel on the head of the serpent. So he's going to bruise the serpent's head and have his heel bruised. And I just wonder if there's some kind of connection here. So if anybody knows anything about that, I need you to email me because I would like to explore that further because I've, there's got to be some kind of connection. But moving on from that little bit aside, the text tells us nothing about their childhood except the fact that, that Isaac and Rebekah play favorites. Uh, uh, Isaac prefers Esau. Esau is the hunter. He's the one that's out in the fields. He's the one that, that brings wild game back for his father to eat. And so Isaac prefers him. The Bible tells us that Jacob is a quiet man. He's the one who dwells in the tents closer to their their home camp. He's the favorite of his mother. And so we see there's a tension already existing between them that is only increased by the choices that Isaac and Rebekah make in their favoritism with these boys. Now, in two weeks... We're going to look at two incidents from the life of Jacob and Esau. But I want to rewind now to the beginning of the message today where I started talking about God's sovereignty. Remember I was talking about God's sovereignty and these these two components of his, His authority and His ability, His right and His power to do whatever He chooses in the universe that he has created. And this passage is a perfect illustration of the truth of God's sovereignty. And so the truth that I want us to explore a little bit this week and in two weeks is this. God is sovereign in his choices. God is sovereign in his choices. He is free and able And he has the authority to make the choices he wants to make. He has the authority and the ability to choose the line of descendants through which his covenant blessings are going to flow. So let's let's make sure that we don't lose sight of the the overarching storyline of what's happening in the Bible. 
Remember, humanity has fallen into sin in the opening chapters of Genesis. And amidst all of this, all of the language of the curse that sin brings about and the curse that humanity experiences because of sin, there's that glimmer of hope that I mentioned just a few moments ago. There is a promised seed, a promised descendant who is coming, who is going to place his foot firmly on the head of the serpent, on the head of Satan in in defeat. Okay, that's just a, a glimmer of promise that is given to us. And the rest of the Bible is just an unfolding of that promise. And we see the beginning of that unfolding taking place in Abraham. All of this, this God makes this covenant with Abraham. He starts with this, this pagan man, calls him to follow him to a place that he's going to go. He uses this man to create a family. He uses this family to create a nation. He uses this nation to bring about a Messiah. And he uses this Messiah to, to defeat the serpent to, to, to crush uh, Satan's power, and then to deliver his blessings to all the families and nations of peoples of the world. So it starts with a man, it goes to a family, it goes to a nation that produces the Messiah to whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. Hey, that's us. That's the big picture of what God is doing. And so that means that if that's going to happen, then God is going to have to be in charge of that process all along the way. And that's the picture that we receive of God as being completely, sovereignly in charge of that process as it moves forward. Now I'd like to, as we're thinking about this idea of God being sovereign in His choices, I'd like to make two observations about God's sovereign choices. I'll make one of them this morning in the remainder of time that we have, and then one in two weeks after Easter. But here's the observation I want us to think about this morning. God's sovereign choices often defy human expectations. God's sovereign choices often defy human expectations. God's choice of Jacob instead of Esau as as the one who the covenant blessings are going to flow, the line that's going to bring about this descendant, this defies human expectations for a couple of reasons. One we've already hinted at, Jacob is not the firstborn. And to us in our culture, we're like, what's the big deal? Because birth order doesn't matter to us. But in that culture of the time, birth order was everything. It was unthinkable to do something outside of birth order. So the firstborn is the one who receives a double portion of the blessings when the patriarch of the, of the family clan passes away. So if you have three children, the inheritance gets divided up into four ways. Two portions go to the firstborn and then a portion each for the second and third. Not only did the firstborn receive a double portion of the blessings, but they also had laid on them the responsibility for leading the family after that. So it would have defied all expectations 
for Jacob, even though he was born just a few minutes later than Esau, it doesn't matter whether it's one minute or ten years, birth order mattered, except God was subverting it and defying expectations. There's something else that defied expectations about this, and that's just the way the two guys look. If you're looking at who's going to be the, le- who's going to be the next leader, Esau is the alpha male. He's the guy that will go out and kill something with his bare hands and bring it back to eat. He's the one that his dad likes. He's good on the grill. <laughs> his dad can make it his favorite stuff for him. And so if you're, then you've got Jacob, who's a quiet guy, dwelling in the tents, favored by his, his mother. You might call him a mama's boy if you wanted to be mean about it, which we don't. But if you're just looking at the two of them, who's more likely to, to be the leader? It's probably going to be Esau. And so God's choice of continuing the line of covenant promises through Jacob would have been totally unexpected. It wouldn't make sense. So the question that we might be asking is, why? Why did God choose to have these covenant blessings flow through the line Jacob? Well, the New Testament talks about this a little bit. The New Testament talks about the unexpected nature of this choice in Romans chapter 9. And in Romans chapter 9, verse 10, the Bible says this, Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right, pause. What, what is that? I was with you till we got to the part about Jacob I loved and Esau I, I hated. What, what is going on there? Well, Paul is, the Apostle Paul is the one who wrote the book of Romans. And when Paul uses that phrase, he is quoting the Old Testament. And he is quoting specifically the prophet Malachi in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. That's a a quote that's lifted straight out of the Old Testament. So the question that we're asking here, well, well, wait a minute, why does it, why is it using the language of love and hate. Well, this language of love and hate is a Hebrew idiom. Hebrew idiom. Now, you've got to scroll back. Uh, some, for some of you, high school was a lot longer ago than others. Uh, so you've got to scroll back to high school or scroll back to college and go to back to your English or literature class. And remember, what is, what is an idiom? <laughs> Well, an idiom is a non-literal figure of speech. And every language has idioms in it. Let me give you an example of an English idiom. You might say that it is raining cats and dogs. When you say 
that it is raining cats and dogs, do you mean that pets are falling from the sky? We all know that that's not what that means. It means it's raining hard. But if you took a non-English speaker and said something like that to them, and they aren't familiar with the language yet, an eyebrow might be raised. They're what? And every language has those non-literal figurative uh, figures of speech. Every language has idioms. And in Hebrew, when love and hate are used this way, it is the language of fundamental choice or preference. And Jesus uses this Hebrew idiom. Remember, there's been a few times when Jesus sets up the conditions for people following him. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, Jesus says something very strange. You don't understand that he's using a Hebrew idiom. He says, do you want to be my disciple? A disciple is a follower. Well, if you're going to be a follower, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, then you're going to have to hate your family. That's what Jesus says. He says, unless a person hates father or mother or sister or brother or even wife and children, he can't be my disciple. So is Jesus saying... That the moment you decide to follow him, you got to go home and tell your family, I hate you guys. I hope nothing but bad happens to you. Of course not. Jesus is using a Hebrew idiom that is expressing the language of fundamental preference or choice. And when Jesus used that idiom to talk about being one of his disciples, he's saying that when it comes down to it, You have to follow me above everything else. I have to be the one that you choose to follow. So if your father or mother or sister or brothers or your wife or your children are pulling you away from Christ, if it becomes between me and them, my disciples follow me. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's the idiom that is being used here. This is the, the language of choice. And this is what is meant in Romans 9. Because in Romans 9, we see the word, we see, uh, going back to it, we see in order that God's purpose of election might continue. What does it mean to elect? If you're having elective surgery, it's a surgery you chose to have. If you've got all of your core requirements done in high school or college, then you have electives that you can take. Those are, those are classes that you can choose. If you go to the polls and cast a ballot, you are electing, you are choosing who you want to be your representative official in government. Okay, so the question then is, we've cleared that up a little bit, the question then, if you go back to it, is why, according to Romans 9, did God elect or choose to have his covenant blessings flow through Jacob rather than Esau. Why? Well, we can tell you why it, what, what, what it isn't. 
Because in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that God's choice of Jacob had absolutely nothing to do with anything either of them had done. And why did it have absolutely nothing to do with anything either of them had done? This is an easy one. They hadn't been born yet. <laughs> they hadn't actually done anything. His, his choice of Jacob had nothing to do with merit. It had nothing to do with, with one being bad and the other being good. And not only was God's choice not based on what either had done, but it was not based on foreseeing what either would do. And that's an important point because it says, because again, it's talking about God's election. His purpose of election might stand. And then you meet Jacob, and it all makes sense because Jacob's not that great of a guy. I mean, sometimes we have the, mis, the mistaken uh, impression as we're reading through the Old Testament that all these people are heroes, and every page you turn, you gasp again. They did what? Jacob is no exception. He is a two-faced, manipulative deceiver. Esau, his brother, says about that, that about him, and Esau's right. Because it's not even foreseeing what any, anything that they will do. The only answer of God, uh, uh, that Romans chapter 9 gives us is that it was simply part of God's free choice. So that's God's purpose or plan of election might stand. That's the only reason Romans 9 gives us. It says God chooses to, to have this line of covenant blessings flow through Jacob basically because God is sovereign and he can choose to do things however he sees fit, whatever is right, whatever he sees right in his own eyes. So the, the Bible doesn't give us a strong answer of why God chooses to have these covenant blessings throw, flow through Jacob's line over Esau's. But I do think the Bible answers a little bit broad. That, that, that question is too specific. The Bible does give us an idea of an answer to a broader question, which is this. Why does God constantly make choices that defy human expectations? And this, I think, the Bible gives us more of an answer for. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians as well as Romans, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, is reflecting on the makeup of that church, who it's composed of. And it's a little bit insulting to them, because he says, you know, not many of you are wise, not many of you are no, nobly born, you guys, you guys come from the other side of the tracks. Not many of you are wealthy. Not many of you are strong. Now, we know that there were wealthy people in the church at Corinth. We know that there were people of noble birth. And we know that there were people of influence within the church of Corinth. It wasn't saying that God never calls any of those kinds of people. But he was just saying, if you just look at the makeup of your church, if you were just to look at your community, look at... Look at Corinth Township and say, well, who's the kind of people God would pick 
well, there's a, there's a business leader, there's a, there's a visionary, there's a wealthy person that lives in the best part of town. I mean, all the things that, all the things that we think of that, that are status symbols, Paul says, that's not how God works. What God actually does is He chooses to show His covenant blessings to people who are not recognized as the wise people in the community. He shows His covenant blessings to the people who aren't the people that have the most power. He shows His covenant blessings to people who maybe don't have the pedigree. He shows those blessings to people who don't have the money. He, he, he blesses, Paul says, the weak and the low. People like us, frankly. Why does he do that? Well, here we do get a really strong answer. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 29. So that, that's an answer, purpose, because so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is constantly doing things and making decisions that defy our expectations in ways that showcase His grace and magnify His glory. So let me bring this home to you this morning. If you are sitting here this morning and you have experienced the salvation of God, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have repented of your sins and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are here this morning solely on account of God's sovereign grace. There is no other explanation. It is not because you heard the plan of salvation and you're smarter than the next guy who rejected it. It's not because God was looking down the corridor of time and saw you and said, she would make a good Christian. Y'all make lousy Christians. So do I. We're not that great at it. The only reason any of us are here is because God in His sovereignty, chose to show us grace. And like Jacob, you've done Zippo to receive these magnificent blessings. So that ought to bring us to a place of humble, grateful worship. The more you catch the Scripture's vision for the sheer sovereignty of God's grace, the more it ought to drive you to humble worship. And it's not always doing that. Which means if it's not doing that, we're not seeing it. It ought to drive us to humble, grateful worship. But let me also say a word to somebody who might be here this morning who has never received the salvation that Christ offers. 
If you have never been saved, if there has never been a, a time in your life when you have repented of your sin and you have come to Jesus in, in faith to receive what He has accomplished for you through His death, burial, and resurrection, let me just share with you one other act of God that defies expectation. It's the cross. All along the way, through the story of of human, of human history, and particularly spiritual history, we see God defying expectations. I mean, we could do a whole sermon of walking through the Bible storyline of seeing God zig and zag and do things that something, thing after thing that is totally unexpected. But none of those things take us more, by more surprise than the cross. It's Palm Sunday today. Palm Sunday is a day when we commemorate the fact that Jesus walked into to, uh, Jerusalem, rode into Jerusalem in triumph. So we call it the triumphal entry. And the crowds are going wild for him because the king is on the way. And that very week, he's lifted up on the cross. That's a change in what we were expecting, isn't it? Well, let me ask you this as well. If you were sovereign, meaning you had the absolute authority and absolute ability to arrange your life the way you want it to be, wouldn't you use your sovereignty to avoid every bit of suffering you could? If I was absolutely sovereign, I'd make sure I never experienced anything wrong. Nothing touches me. Yet that God, with that sovereignty, chooses freely to enter into a world to give himself as a sacrifice. You want to talk about defied expectations. That our sovereign God would give his only son, as we sing, to make a wretch his treasure. So the sovereign God, if you're here this morning, that matches you. The sovereign God calls you to a real choice. The very next chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 10, says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you're here this morning without Christ, the sovereign God who defies all expectations again and again and again, promises that if you will call on his name where you are seated right now, you will be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, we... uh, we come to you this morning recognizing that we are limited in our abilities to understand. And so I pray that you would be, help us to be students of the Scriptures, that we would seek to understand this tension between your sovereignty and human responsibility, that we would seek to understand, but that we would be fully comfortable as people who can can say what the Bible says and aren't afraid what the, to say what the Bible says about everything. We 
worship you this morning, Lord. That you constantly defy expectations and that you would save people like us. And I pray that we would offer ourselves to you this morning in worship. That we would be the most humble people on the planet. That the more we see your grace, the more that would send back the glory that you deserve. Lord, if there is someone who does not know Christ in a saving way this morning, I pray that you would so work in their heart to believe the good news, to call upon your name, and to experience the salvation of our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.